Now this morning, we are in, uh, we are in first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, and for those of you who are just jumping in on our study, uh, we're studying uh, 2 Thessalonians kind of verse by verse, and we talked when we began the study about the fact that Paul is writing this book to comfort a young church. It's a church that he started and then sort of rapidly had to leave because of pressure that was happening there. It's a church that's been persecuted, and because of his absence, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, and then in 2 Thessalonians, he's continuing to try and shepherd them from afar, specifically in 2 Thessalonians, following up with some things that he'd already said, but really trying to comfort them with regard to three main issues. In the first chapter, we see him comforting them and giving them hope with regard to persecution that's occurring. And if you were with us last Sunday, we looked at the second half of that passage where he says to them, look, I I see that these difficult things are happening, this trial and difficulty, but take comfort in the fact that God is just, that he has counted you worthy of shaping you for the kingdom, that the difficulty that's happening in your life is evidence of the fact that he has deemed you worthy of shaping for the kingdom. Not only that, take comfort in the fact that he will return. The day of the Lord will come and Jesus will come and he will judge the unrighteous. He will punish those who have turned away from him, right? We talked about that punishment last week and then he went on to say, not only will he punish the unrighteous when he returns at the day of the Lord, but he will give rest to you who love him, right? He will give you rest and peace. So that was the comfort in the first chapter. Now the comfort in the second chapter has not so much to do with persecution as it has to do with false teaching. And we read the text a second ago, and it's an, it's an interesting text. I would guess that for some of you, as we read it, uh, y- your, your hearts got a little bit agitated. There's much in the text that sort of stirs us and makes us feel a little confused. Um, there are all kinds of things in this text that can end up feeling confusing or scary or frustrating because of the need for guessing. The need for guessing. And here's what I mean. There are some things said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that kind of feel incomplete. Things that make you go, what in the world is he talking about? Things that you kind of have to look at and go, you know, even in the middle of 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 1 through 12, there's a place in verse 5 where he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, the idea here is that when Paul had been with them in, in physical presence, he had said some things to them about the man of lawlessness, about this time of great apostasy or rebellion, about the restrainer that would hold back the man of lawlessness that he's referring them back to and saying, you, you should know these things. Remember, I told you about these things. The trouble is that for us here in 2020, we weren't at that meeting, right? And so while we do have some great sort of other passages in the scripture, including 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, I wanna give you a little bit of homework. If you wanna do some reading, if you wanna do further reading on some of the stuff that's being talked about here with regard to the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, uh, you could look at Daniel chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 11. Those would be great places for you to read and kind of dig a little bit. If you wanna read at the end, you could read in Revelation chapter 13 and kind of dig a little bit there. You could also to read what Jesus says about the end times in Matthew 24. There are some great places that we can sort of put some of these pieces together, but to be honest with you, a text like 2 Thessalonians 2 has been classically distracting for people, right? There are reams of paper that have been written and printed that are essentially just made up of people's best guesses. I want to start this morning by looking at two clear guesses in the text, but I want to, I want to begin by saying I don't want you to be distracted by the things we have to guess about. Um, I would guess that for some of you, even as I came out this morning carrying a golden egg, uh, that you probably thought to yourself, I wonder what that's doing there, right? I wonder if that egg 
opens. It does. It has a seal right here. I bought this at Target, so it's not really gold. It's plastic. I bought this at Target. And now, now you may be wondering what's inside this egg. In 2 Thessalonians, it's, no, I'm just kidding. I, I brought this out here just for the sake of saying there are these moments in life that we start to look at things and we go, what is that and what's it doing there and what's inside of it and where is he going with this? And what's, I, don't, I don't actually want to keep this up here because I don't want you to be distracted. There's nothing in it. It's an empty egg. I'm not going to open it because I'm not sure I could reclose it. But Josh, will you take this so people aren't distracted? Thank you, my friend. Can I throw it to you? What, is the, what are the chances? Look at that. I'm ready for the XFL. Uh, all right. It is possible for us in the midst of a text like this, where there are things like the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, where there are references to the restrainer, where we can get so preoccupied with making our best guesses that we miss the core of what he's actually trying to say here. This morning in the course of our study, I want you to see two guesses in the text. I want you to see two goals, and I want you to see, I I just put up four fingers, so I'll do this, and I want you to see two guarantees, right? There's six, right? Two guesses, two goals, and two guarantees in the text. The two guesses, and again, you can read and read and read and read about all the different theories, but primarily the two guesses in this particular text have to do with the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, and they have to do with the restrainer. In the text, he says to them, hey, I know that some of you are preoccupied and you're worried. You've become shaken and deceived by the idea that the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's judgment has already come. Right? You're worried about this. Somebody told you that the day of the Lord has already come, but you should remember, he says, that the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness has been revealed and the day of rebellion has occurred. Those two things happen kind of simultaneously, this rebellion or this apostasy. Those things will happen, and those can't happen until the restrainer that's currently holding the man of lawlessness back is removed. Now, for some of you, you may have done you know, immaculate research in this before. For some of you, none of that makes any sense. He's talking about the end of times, right? He's talking about end times. He's also likely talking about things that are currently happening in their culture that he's pointing at and looking through to the future. But this is why it gets so confusing. The reality is that the most anybody can do with some of these things with regard to who the man of lawlessness is, exactly who or what this restrainer is, the most that people can do is take their best educated guesses. And I want to start here by saying that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad idea to take educated guesses, right? In fact, the revelation will tell us that those who look into these things are blessed. So I think there can sometimes be a temptation for us to go, I don't know who the man of lawlessness is. I don't know what that restrainer thing's all about. I don't know about the day of apostasy, so I'm not even gonna pay attention to it at all. I'm just gonna try and love other people and love God and ignore it. Well, that's too far, right? Pendulum swung too far. You should pay attention to it. It's a great idea to study it and have a best guess. I have some best guesses, but I'm not gonna share those with you this morning because I don't want you to adopt my best guesses because they're just guesses. There can be a tendency for us to listen to what people we respect or people that we like their writing or we like their teaching have guessed and go, yeah, I like this guy, I like that lady, I like her teaching, I like his teaching, and so my guess is their guess. I don't want to give you my best guess with regard to to who these characters are or what they exactly mean. What I want to tell you is that that's not the point of what Paul's trying to do here. He says to them, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. By its very nature, that means he is not revealed yet. 
It's great for us to take guesses, but in the process of wrestling with issues, the things in the scripture that are mysterious, the Bible is full of mystery. It's full of revelation. Think about the disciples, right? We just finished a study in John. Think about all of the things that Jesus said to them that they did not get until much later. Remember in John 12, when we're looking at the triumphal entry, and it says they watched that whole triumphal entry thing go down, and it wasn't until after it all happened that they looked back and went, oh, we see the way the pieces fit together. I think sometimes as Christians we feel like we need to have all the answers today. We need to know it all today. Listen, Jesus' own disciples didn't piece it all together at the time they had Jesus right in front of them. It's okay for us to hold some things loosely. It's okay for us not to have an answer to every question. The reality is that people have taken tons of guesses about the timing of when the Antichrist will arrive, of who his identity is, uh, of what this rebellion will look like, of what temple it's talking about him taking a seat in, right? Is that talking about the temple in Jerusalem? Is that talking about the temple which is now the church, which is all of us? Like, wh- what does it mean? People have made all kinds of guesses. They've made guesses about who this restrainer is. And by the way, when it talks about the restrainer, it talks first about the restrainer as sort of a, it's not a personal pronoun there. It's, a, it's, a, it's more like a, like a force, this restrainer. And then it says he. So we get a little bit further down. It says in verse 6, you know that what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. I will tell you there are as many guesses as you can count for what this restrainer is or who this restrainer is. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, some people think that's talking about human government. Some people think it's talking about the Roman government. Some people think it's talking about the gospel, the church. Some people think it's talking about Satan. Some people think it's talking about God's providence. Some people think it's talking about the Jewish state. Some people think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Some people think it's talking about the Archangel Michael. I don't want that to confuse you. I want you to say that all of those guesses, I want you to understand, all those guesses are pretty good, right? All those guesses make a lot of sense. And when you listen to the people lay out their guesses, you go, yeah, I can see why they guessed that. But we shouldn't spend too much time lost in the guesswork. Does that make sense? It's worth exploring, but it is possible to get so distracted by the golden egg and what might be inside it that we don't pay attention to what's actually declared. It's interesting in this text that he says point blank that there are those who will be punished because they did not love the truth that there are those who were sent to delusion by God because they did not love the truth. Can I tell you, church, we want to be people who are focused on what we can declare with authority and what is essential. We want to be people who love the truth and don't get distracted by our own guesses. There can sometimes be a selfishness in getting distracted. So if I were going to give you a couple of pointers here at the outset, it would be this. First of all, and most importantly, things to remember, love the truth, will you? Love the truth. There are things in this text that are declared, goals and guarantees. We're going to look at them in a second. Love the truth. Have all the fun you want making your guesses, but the second thing I would remind you is be willing to say you could be wrong. I think one of the failures that people fall into when they're making guesses, because the scripture is vague in this particular case, right? We can't necessarily put it all together. One of the major mistakes that people make is they go, I know who this is talking about. I know what this says. I know authoritatively, and anybody who doesn't agree with me is a heretic. Can I tell you that's a, that's a dangerous step to take? We all want to be able to draw a line in the sand and go, this is the side of the issue I'm on. The danger becomes when you draw a circle around yourself and you say everybody outside of the circle is mental, right? No, no, no. 
take your best guess, but hold it loosely. Be willing to say you could be wrong. Be willing to say this is what you feel the weight of Scripture leads you toward. But focus on what's most important. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, he says this. And he actually refers to Paul's prophetic writing. He says, Peter says, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's talking about Jesus. We're waiting for the end, right? We're waiting for this new heaven and new earth. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, right? He says you get that, it's, that it can be confusing. Paul writes about these things, but it can be hard to wrap your brain around. So don't get bogged down in the golden egg, right? Don't get bogged down in your guesses. Look at what he says instead. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you were not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What's Peter reminding us of? There are things we can know, things we can chase. I would remind you to love the truth, to admit you can be wrong. I would want you to look at your own life and recognize that sometimes in our lives we like guesswork better than we like loving the concrete truth because the concrete truth requires something of us and we'd rather not have anything required of us. Does that make sense? The issues in which you're kind of up in the air, you go, yeah, it could be this, it could be this. This might be who the Antichrist is. This might be what the restrainer means. Those issues that feel like they're a little bit of a guess, they don't require anything of you because you don't want to act on a guess. So some people get bogged down in living a life of continuous guesswork because it requires nothing of them. Beware. Be warned. Pay attention to what has been declared, even in a text like this, because what has been declared will compel you to action. It'll call you to move. It'll call you to live. The last thing I would say is is that it's very honest and good to admit you don't have all the answers, right? I think one of the ways that we undermine our uh, our own reputation in our community and with people who aren't followers of Jesus is by pretending that we know with authority things we can't know with authority, right? By, by being declarative on things that there are some question about. Now, are there things we can declare? Absolutely. Look at the character of Christ. Look at the things that are declared in the text. You want to stand authoritatively on that? You can do that stuff all day. But don't pretend to know something that you don't know because people will see through that. And then what does it do? It undermines the rest of your testimony. Right? People go, this, this guy's bluffing. He's basically just trying, to call, he's just trying to bluff, and we can call that. Stand on what is authoritative. Stand on what is essential, and allow your guesses to just be part of the fun, right? A part of the fun of trying to figure it out together. There's community that can be built around some of, this, uh, some of our, our best sort of estimates here. Here's, here's what we do know. I've, I've sort of laid out the, uh, the, the dangers with a text like this. Let me tell you what we can see in the text underneath sort of this heading of, of our best guesses. One of the things we can see is this antichrist or the man of lawlessness precedes the day of the Lord. 
There are people who would look at a text like this and they would say, well, you know, this is the text we're gonna use to show that the church gets raptured out before all of the tribulation happens. There are other people who look at the very same text and go, well, this is evidence of the fact that the church is gonna be here through the tribulation. I'm not gonna wade into that one with you, but I will tell you that once again, those people are making their best guesses, right? So we can get real heated up over pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, and some of you are getting heated up that I'm even saying this, but the reality is there are some really great arguments on every side of that issue. So make your best guess, but don't divide yourself from the brothers on that. What we know here is that this, this rebellion and the arrival of the man of lawlessness precedes the day of the Lord. It says here, he says, don't be alarmed. Let no one, verse three, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That rebellion is a time of apostasy. It's not just an uprising, but it's a time where the, the people of the earth, the creation, have turned against their creator. Now listen, that's been happening forever, right? That is happening today, and it continues to happen. So there's something profoundly different, and we don't necessarily understand all the details, but this day of apostasy comes before the day of the Lord, and it comes hand in hand with the arrival of the lawless one or the Antichrist. What we know about the Antichrist is that he is not Satan, he is Satan's puppet. Look in this text here where it says, uh, verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. He'll come with power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. But it's important to understand the man of lawlessness is not Satan himself, he's the tool of Satan. He's, a, he's the puppet of Satan. It's Satan's power behind him. We also understand from the text uh, th- that he is a blasphemer, that he, um, he will sit himself in a seat of authority. He will disregard all the gods, both supposed gods and true gods, and will seat himself in a position that is only reserved for God. So he's a heretic and a blasphemer. He's an idolater. He will po- po- point people towards himself. That's what we know. It's important for us to know the things that are stated clearly in the text so that we have our radar up to be able to identify what this antichrist looks like, what this man of lawlessness looks like. But it's also worth noting that in John's writing, John talks about the fact that there is, uh, there is this one antichrist, but there are also many antichrists, people who are, who are blasphemers, people who seat themselves in, in the position that only belongs to God. So we also understand from the text that there is this restrainer, this power, this person that's holding back, right, the, the, the revelation of the, uh, of the Antichrist. And like I said, people have made all kinds of guesses as to who that restrainer is. What we know here about the restrainer is that it's both a force, power, and a, and a person or persons, but it's subject to God's ultimate control. The revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the lawless one, the coming of the day of apostasy or rebellion, all of it sits under the authority of God. The very fact that the man of lawlessness is being withheld and will be revealed is proof that we're on somebody else's clock, right? That this whole thing is operating on God's wristwatch. One of the things I love about soccer, or as they say everywhere else in the world, football, is that the only clock for a soccer match is on the wrist of the referee, right? I really like that. He's the one who controls when the game starts and when it stops. He's the one who controls whether we go into extra time or whether we don't, when the, when the clock is paused. I, I love that about, and it's actually kind of changing right now, but whatever. We're on God's clock. He is in control. It's interesting in Acts chapter one, verse six and seven. It says, so when, the time had, uh, when they had come together, that's the disciples, this is after uh, Jesus had risen from the dead. When they had come together, Acts one, six, they asked him, Lord, 
will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. There is a clock, and we're on it. It's God's clock. And he himself has said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. How much useless time have men and women spent over the generations guessing about the clock that Jesus says it's on God's wrist and nobody else knows it, right? He is the author of this time frame. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, Daniel in the midst of a celebration of who God is says he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 verse 36 when he's talking about uh, the, 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 the end times, Jesus himself says in verse 24 36 of chapter 24 36 of Matthew says but concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father only right what's Jesus saying there is a clock there is a time the the man of lawlessness will be revealed the day of apostasy will come the restrainer will be removed but at this time Paul is saying the restrainer is in place and so you don't have to worry about the false teaching that that's been made what's he saying to them we're on God's clock God's not out of control there is a time frame. You just don't know it. Does that make you feel crazy? We want to know, don't we? We want God to tell us. We, we want to have all of these answers. You're welcome to take your guesses, but make sure you always treat them as guesses. And I'll say one other thing. You know that God could have articulated the exact time if he'd wanted to, right? That if God wanted to say, oh, uh, yeah, the man of lawlessness is going to show up at 427 on April 16th, whatever, like, uh, that's going to be taken out of context. Somebody's going to post that on the internet, right? Like, Darren McWater says the man of lawlessness will show up on April, don't do that. We'll, we'll cut that out. But if God had wanted to write that in the scriptures, he could have, right? If God had not wanted this to feel like there's a little bit of mystery to it. He wants us to focus on the things he has declared with clarity, and he doesn't want us to get distracted by the golden egg, right? He doesn't want us to get distracted. He could have articulated it with absolute precision. He could have said, this is who the Antichrist is. This is his name. This is the day he'll be born. This is the day he'll show up on the scene. This is the day the day of apostasy will arrive. He doesn't do that. So we have to step back and go, why does God leave mystery? Well, it's the very same reason that the disciples didn't understand everything he said. Could Jesus have been more clear with the disciples? You might argue that he, he was pretty clear with them, right? Some of it had to do with their thick-headedness. But in the mystery, what are we called to do? In the mystery, we are drawn to the person of Christ. I think sometimes we get preoccupied with chasing our guesses, and God wants us to chase Jesus. Does that make sense? Don't chase your guesses, chase Jesus. There are some things we see here, God's ultimate control, his timing, his purpose. We see a little bit of who this antichrist will be. We see a little bit about the timing of the day of the Lord. We see a little bit about the fact that he's Satan's puppet, that he's accompanied by rebellion and apostasy, blasphemy. And then we also see something else. Don't miss this. Because I would guess that for some of you, even in our teaching team meeting this last week, um, one of the people who were talking, they were like, man, when I read this, it makes me feel kind of freaked out. 
I could get kind of scared. All this stuff about the man of lawlessness seating himself on God's throne, entering into the temple, rejecting all the gods. I get kind of scared. I get a little nervous. I get a little freaked out. Can I tell you, if that's how you start to feel, when we start to talk about the end of human history on earth, we start to talk about these end times. If you start to feel yourself getting a little, a little scared, let me, just, let me just point you to one other little thing that Paul declares with absolute certainty in the text. Look at what it says in uh, verse 8. It says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Listen, I- I've had flies land on a counter in front of me right? And, and that's kind of gross. And I'll lean forward and I'll blow on them. I can't kill a fly with my breath. I can maybe push it off the counter, but it'll come back, right? Jesus, Jesus will return. And all of this wickedness and all of this evil, this evil power that seats himself in the place that is reserved for God alone, that leads people astray through this deception, through the false signs and, and, the, and the false wonders, this man of lawlessness who is the puppet of Satan himself, it says Jesus puffs his breath. And I don't think that's a statement about Jesus having bad breath. I think it's a reminder of the power of our God. What's Paul trying to do here? I've told you from the beginning, what he's trying to do is comfort this young church who is agitated, right? And so he reminds them, hey, is the evil going to get worse before it gets better? Absolutely. Are things going to come off the, off the rails a little bit? Absolutely. Is there going to be widespread rejection of God? Are there going to be leaders that appear to be holy men but are not holy at all? Absolutely. But listen, after that person appears on the scene, Jesus will show up shortly after and he will utterly destroy the man of lawlessness with a puff of his breath. What are we worried about? You see, not only are there some things in the text two specifically here, but maybe a few more. Not only are there a couple of things to guess about in a text like this, Paul has some goals, two goals I want you to see. He states them right at the outset. Look at verses one and two. He says, now concerning the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So he says to them, he gives them two goals. The two goals are, number one, don't let yourself be shaken or alarmed. There's two different ideas there. The idea of being shaken is internally unmoored, right? Coming unmoored or unanchored from a, from a position of stability, internally. And the alarmed has to do with sort of an external agitation, right? That you start to get fidgety and worried. You start to get nervous about the evil that you see in the world, about the danger that could come your way, about what the future holds and the fact that you're only making your best guesses as to where you're headed, right? And you might not have any fear this morning about the Antichrist, right? You might go, yeah, I'm not worried about the the Antichrist or the day of apostasy or whatever. Jesus has got that. But you might be totally freaked out by something else. You might be totally freaked out by all kinds of other things. Your own financial stability, the state of your marriage, the state of our country, the, the illnesses that are going around the country. You might be sitting here this morning with your knees knocking together worried but can I tell you, God is in control. He says to this church, I don't want you to be shaken and I won't, don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be shaken and alarmed. The, one of the goals of Paul here is to look at this church and by extension to look at us and say, the people of God never need to be shaken, unmoored from their stability. They never need to be alarmed. Why? Because the God we serve can kill Satan's puppet with a breath. What can't he do? 
what can't he do? The first thing he says is don't be shaken and alarmed. The second thing he says is don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you, right? He says either by a, by a, by a spirit, which the idea there is of a prophetic word, something somebody has said and then said, God gave that to me, right? God told me to declare this to you. He says don't let yourself be deceived or shaken, alarmed by a prophetic word or by something that somebody wrote or something that somebody said, even if it seems like it comes from us. Most theologians sort of agree that somewhere in here there was somebody who purported to be Paul who was telling them that the day of the Lord had already come or that the day of the Lord, they were in the middle of it, that the judgment of God was currently happening. And so Paul here says, don't, don't let yourself be shaken or alarmed by people who tell you something false. Don't let yourself be shaken or alarmed by people who would tell you something that directly contradicts what you've already been taught. So the second thing that is a goal for him here is this lack of deception. How does a lack of deception, deception happen? By remembering what you've been told. How do you remember what you've been told? Come back to God's word. I, I know that it feels trite and you, like if you're not a regular churchgoer, you come into a place like this and you're like, oh, here it comes. The guy, uh, the pastor guy is gonna tell us we're supposed to read our Bibles, right? Oh yeah, I get it, read our Bibles. Can I tell you, reading your Bible is not like a thing you do on a checklist to be a good Christian. Reading your Bible is how you can remain unshaken and unalarmed in the midst of terror and fear because God has declared some things to us. Understanding what God has declared to us, understanding who he is, is what keeps us from being deceived. It says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, kind of speaking to something similar to this, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 and following, he says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone, whose name, uh, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, I don't know that Hymenaeus and Philetus are the same people who spread the deception in Thessaloniki, but it's something similar. There are people who swerve from the truth, and they're saying things that contradict the Scripture, and everybody's getting riled up. I, I will, I mean, I, I don't want to upset you if you're like a crazy podcast person, but I will once again point you at podcasting and say, just this week, I had somebody send me a link to four different podcasts that were a great, absolute, clear example of this. People who have swerved from the truth, right? Who have swerved from the truth themselves and now are trying to lead other people in that same swerve. Does that make sense? And because they have a podcast and because they have 185,000 hits on their YouTube channel or whatever, we go, well, these people are authorities. No, they are aren't, they're humans like you and me. They get it wrong. Many times they're taking their best guess. Can I tell you where authority lies? In God's word. In God's word. You feel like you're coming unmoored? It might be that you're listening to the wrong voices. They are being deceived by people who've swerved from the truth. He says, I don't want you to be shaken or stirred by a prophecy or a speech or a letter that appears like it comes from me but isn't of God. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 4 says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. There are all kinds of people in our world, and it's not new to our world, it's just the technology has made it easier to find them. But the technology now comes right into your ear pods, right? And there's all kinds of people who would want to dissuade you from the truth. We have to be careful that we understand Paul's goals here that we be rooted in the guarantees so that we not be shaken or alarmed and so that we not be deceived. Uh, when I lived at Hume Lake, 
uh, uh, that's in the mountains, by the way, up north, uh, central California. And from about November until uh, sometimes until June, there's some snow on the ground. But when you get to about this time of the year, late February, early March, the snow starts to melt a little bit. You might get more snow, but uh, the snow starts to melt and everything just kind of turns mucky, right? So there's mud, there's puddles, there's icy water, there's some slick places, places that are frozen over. But when I grew up in Arizona, right? I grew up in Phoenix where like I think it snowed once when I was a kid and it, it basically just fell in the sky and then like was incinerated on the sidewalk, which was like eight. 80 degrees, right? I never lived in a cold climate. I'd never had to worry about icy puddles or slick mud or snow drifts or whatever. And when I moved to Hume Lake, uh, I, I mostly was just wearing Converse All-Stars, right? And uh, I should have worn those so that you could picture them in your head. It doesn't matter. Uh, I w- and I'll tell you what, I had to spend all my time watching out for puddles. I had to spend all my time watching out for slick places. I had to spend all my time watching out for snow that was deeper than I thought, for holes I was going to fall into, for mud that was going to slip out from underneath me. And so I'd have to spend a ton of time preoccupied with all the things that could go wrong because I have the right shoes, but the moment I realized that you can buy a decent pair, like they're expensive, but you can buy a decent pair of all-weather boots, and then you know what? You don't have to worry about whether it's icy. You don't have to worry about whether there's a puddle. You don't have to worry about whether there's mud. You can walk through a dead deer carcass and really be fine with it, right? (laughs) It's a great life to live. What made the difference? It's not that, the, it's not that the, the environment changed. The environment is still just as scary as it always was. What made the difference is that I put my feet into a set of solid boots and they made the environment meaningless. The last two things I want you to see in the text that Paul gives us in the midst of this to comfort this young church and to comfort us are a couple of guarantees. They're boots you can slide your feet into and they don't change the fact that the man of lawlessness will come. They don't change the fact that there will be widespread apostasy. They don't change the fact that that there are people who are deceived, that don't love the truth but take pleasure in unrighteousness. It won't change the environment at all, but it will give you the ability to walk with confidence in the midst of that environment and not be afraid. Two guarantees I want you to see in this text. The first one is right in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken or alarmed. The first thing he says to them in this next section is Jesus is coming back to gather us to him. Jesus is coming back to gather us to him. And whether you think that's going to happen before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after, I, I don't want to get into that argument with you. But the reality is there is a guarantee in this text that Jesus knows you and sees you and is coming back for you, and not just for you, but for me too, for us. He's gonna gather us together. This whole section is predicated upon the fact that Jesus is coming again, that that same victorious Jesus who can end the man of lawlessness with a puff of his breath loves us and will gather us to himself. Do I know when that's gonna happen? No, I don't. Do I know it's gonna happen? Yes, I do. Does it change The way I traverse the environment, absolutely. Because no matter what comes, I know the way this story ends. I know the way this story, not just of my life, but the story of human history ends. Jesus is coming back to gather us to himself. Not only, that's the first of the guarantees here, but the second thing I would want you to see in this is that evil will not overcome. 
Evil will not overcome. Does it sometimes feel like evil's gonna, gonna win the day? You sometimes feel like you're in the midst of a Star Wars movie or something where you're not sure whether or not Emperor Palpatine is gonna destroy the rebellion? Can I tell you, this is not that. You're looking for tension in the Christian story? There is no tension. Jesus is already victorious. The story was finished when he walked out of that tomb having paid the penalty for the sins of mankind. He is coming again to gather us to himself and even the uprising of the evil will be squelched by Jesus. Evil won't win the day. Evil cannot win the day. Jesus is victorious. It says in the text not only that he will destroy or he will kill the man of lawlessness with his breath, but look at the last part of the section we're studying this morning. He says in verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The man of lawlessness comes with with false signs and wonders and that kind of lawlessness exists in our world as, as it exists today. And people will be deceived. They'll be deceived by these false signs and these false statements. And they will refuse to love the truth and be saved. I want you to notice the sequence here because what comes next is a little troubling. It says in verse 11, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We read a verse like that and we go, wait a second, hold on a second here. God will send a delusion on people so that they will believe what is false? So that they will be condemned because they didn't love the truth? Like, what? And we, you have to absolutely see the sequence here because what, what happens, there are people here who refuse to love the truth and instead take pleasure in unrighteousness. People who alternatively, they, they hate the truth and they love the falsehood. They love the lie. They love the, 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 the seating of oneself in a place that only belongs to God. They love the idolatry. They love the false power. They love the false pleasure. They love the false joy. They love those things and they have turned away from the truth and they would not believe it. And when they turn away from the truth and they will not believe it, when they say to God, I'm not interested in your truth, he gives them what they're asking for. He gives them what they're asking for. God sends them a strong delusion so that they cannot believe what they have said they will not believe. Evil will not overcome. And, and that's a sobering thing to finish the message on here this morning. We saw some things we can make guesses about. We saw two goals of Paul, that he wants us not to be shaken or alarmed. He also doesn't want us to be deceived by rooting us in the truth. But we'll finish here with these guarantees. Listen, my friends, Jesus will return and gather us to himself. He will be victorious. And not only that, he will punish evil, the wrongdoing that we see in the world, the wrongdoing that is the, the instrument of Satan. Satan himself will not overcome. And even those who have turned away from the truth, there may be some of us in this room who have turned away from the truth, refused to love the truth, and instead taken pleasure in unrighteousness, abandoned the truth to serve themselves, God sends them a strong delusion so that they cannot believe. But I, I will tell you that what this should stir in us is both a confidence in who God is, a confidence in the way the story of human history ends here on earth, but it should also stir in us a great compassion. 
Because I would guess there are probably some of us in this room, all of us in this room, hopefully, know some people in our communities, maybe in your apartment building, or maybe at your school, or maybe where you work, or maybe in your neighborhood, you know some people who've refused to love the truth. There is absolutely a reminder here that until the day of the Lord has come, there is an opportunity for us to turn people back to a love of the truth. How How do we turn them back to a love of the truth? How do we not leave them in that rejection of what is right and true, the rejection of Christ and his gospel? By revealing the truth of who Christ is in our life. The way we reveal Christ and who he is in our life is by not allowing ourselves to be shaken and alarmed, to be deceived by things that are not revealed by God. By not being too preoccupied in our good guesses that we miss the things that God has absolutely declared. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir two things in us as a church family this morning, that you would stir in us a confidence in who you are, that we would slide our lives into the snow boot of your omnipotence and your goodness, of your presence, your power, that we would slide our lives into the snow boot of who you are and be able to traverse what might otherwise seem like an obstacle-filled landscape with confidence because of who you are. But I pray, God, that we would also, number one, have have confidence in the fact that you will overcome, that you have overcome, that evil will not be victorious, but that that would stir us to a deeper compassion, that the radiant peace we have would radiate out into the lives of those around us who do not have that peace, and that we would be your ambassadors of peace, that we would carry that peace to others and say, look at the truth, see the truth that we would chase Jesus instead of our guesses. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.